We continue our series through the book of Romans by looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. This is a key passage to look at in our cultural moment. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, we didn't pick this passage a few weeks before tax day on April 15th, and you'll see here in a little bit that Paul does say to pay your taxes. If you've been here for a while, you know that we've been working through Romans since the fall, and we just happened to get to Romans chapter 13 today. But cannot emphasize enough how important this passage is. Here's the context. There's an emperor by the name of Claudius. And Claudius is purging the known world of the, at the time of all Christians. And we know that there is a large population, a growing population of Jews converting to Christianity in Rome. And he's purging all of the major city centers, including Rome, of all Christians. And the Christians want to know, they desperately want to know, if God is sovereign, is he truly sovereign in all things and even leading me to try to live in harmony in this world under a government and in a culture that is anti-Christian and is pagan? So with the number of rising Christians in Rome... And Emperor Claudius purging the known world, and particularly Rome, of all these Christians, sending them out, putting them to death, the Christians want to know, what do we do about it? How do we respond? Yes, Paul, we, we know that God is in control of all things. We've just heard in Romans chapter 12 of this amazing love for us that we are to put on display to even the most unlovable people. That's what we talked about last week. But how do I exist as a Christian in a culture and a government that is anti-Christian, that is pagan and is secular? And that is the culture in which Paul writes Romans chapter 13. Remember Romans chapter 12 started off by saying, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Then it's a fair question to ask, then what do we do about Caesar? He doesn't like God. He doesn't like the church. That the culture is anti-Christian and anti-church and anti-God. What do we do about that? Should we pay taxes to a Christ-denying secular government? Rome claimed that Caesar was Lord, that he was divine. But Paul in Romans chapter 8 said Jesus is Lord and that he is divine. So it's in this cultural moment that Paul writes this text. And I think... Into this cultural moment, we receive this text this morning. Hear the word of God as it's proclaimed in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger of who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subjection. 
Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And on this Lord's day, the grass continues to wither and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord, even here in Romans chapter 13, it stands forever. Amen. This is an important cultural moment that Paul writes into here in Romans chapter 13. It's an important cultural moment for the people of God. And how will they respond in Christian love and charity to a culture and a government that is anti-Christian and anti-church, pagan and secular? But I think it's just as important of a cultural moment that we live in today. That the people of God have to ask the question, as they had to ask the question 2,000 years ago, how will we respond as a church to this important cultural moment that we live in today? Because I think we're failing. Because I think we're failing at it as a church. How do we, like the people of God in Romans chapter 13, respond to the moment of our day with love and generosity and sacrificial service. David Brooks, one of my favorite columnists, wrote in an article the week following the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, and he said this in his article. He said, the Kavanaugh hearings were a look in the mirror and a vivid display of how ugly things had become. And then he said, and ended the article by saying, and what are we going to do about it? And so I ask you this morning, church, what are we going to do about it? There's a few things that we can learn here in Romans chapter 13 about how we as the people of God respond in a equally critically cultural moment. So what does Paul teach us here in Romans chapter 13, particularly verses 1 through 7? The first thing that we see in this passage that Paul wants to establish, who is the source of all authority? What is the source of all authority? What well, we read in verse 1 and 2, where all authority comes from. He says this, for there is no authority except from God. And that is the reason why Paul says, subject yourself to it. We subject ourselves to authority regardless of who that authority is. Why? Because God has been the one that institutes and appoints all authority. Now here... In the context of Romans chapter 13, Paul, especially the last few verses that we read, Paul is clearly talking about the authority of the state or the governing and civil authority. But because God is sovereign over all, being in subjection to authority can apply to all authorities of life, whether that is an employer or a boss or even our parents. Parents, we can do our children a world of good by teaching them that God is sovereign and that living life in submission is a good way of living life. It will train them and teach them the most important lessons in life for when they are an adult. 
But what is the truth that Paul is trying to say here? That all authority, whether a parent or a boss or the governing authorities of this local municipality or of the land, all come from one place, and it is God. And that is the reason by which we, as the people of God, regardless of the authority, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of how bad we look at the cultural moment it it might be, we can say that I can live my life under subjection and in submission to it because it is ultimately doing what? It is ultimately living my life under submission and subjection to who? God, who is appointed all authority. This is interesting here because Paul here is making a very clear political statement. He's writing, remember, into a culture that believed that Caesar was Lord, that Caesar was God, that Caesar was divine. And what Paul is saying here is no, that even the Caesar is under the subject and rule of God. So it doesn't matter how heinous Caesar might appear, he He does not rule apart from the sovereign rule of God. This is making such a political statement here that God is God and Caesar is not. And therefore we live our lives under submission to those in authority over us as if we are living ultimately under submission to God. So that we can say just as we already sung this morning that though the wrong seems off so strong... He is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. And so all throughout biblical history, Romans 13 lines up with everything we have seen up until this point. God, all throughout the Old Testament, not only raises up good leaders, but he raises up evil leaders. He raises up the good and raises up the bad. Read all throughout Daniel. Read all throughout the judges about how God has raised certain individuals up for this very purpose. Just a few chapters ago in Romans chapter 9, Paul reminds us that God raised up who? Evil Pharaoh for what? This very purpose. But it wasn't Pharaoh ascending to their throne. It wasn't Pharaoh working in independence and on autonomy that even Pharaoh was raised up by God himself. Jesus, when he's before Pilate, and I think we have it for you, John chapter 19, verse 11, Pilate is trying to convince Jesus that if you would just renounce and recant, I would let you go. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 19, verse 11? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me unto you has the greater sin. Oh, little pilot, you have no authority except by any authority that is given to you by God himself. So therefore, when we rebel and complain against authority at any level, what we're ultimately doing is rebelling and complaining against the sovereignty of God. God is on his throne and he reigns supreme in any cultural moment, in any circumstance. And oh, how I long for the day where the church would act like it that we would actually act 
as if God is on his throne, that we would actually act as if we just believed what we sang to be true. This is my father's world, that the source of all authority and all governing authority and all leadership ultimately flows and is from the source of almighty God. Although the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. But not only do we read in Romans chapter 13 where all authority comes from, that submission to authority is ultimately submission to God, but we also learn the purpose of authority. Why has God put authority, particularly now we start to get a little more specific, civil and governing authorities in our lives? We read about it in verse 3 and 4, the purpose of authority. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Skipping down to verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. What does the word servant mean there? The word servant in the Greek is literally translated minister. What? Minister? I thought they were the, the men on staff at a church. Aren't they the men who preach and administer the sacraments? No, what Paul is saying here is so profound. That God is not only the one who appoints and gives life and gives credence and gives authority to those that are ultimately in control, but he appoints them to be in control for what? For the common good of all people and that they serve at the authority and the disposal of God. Why? For ministry. It's the ministry of the government. It's the ministry of the state. If you go to some, even European countries today, they don't call them secretaries, but they call them ministers of defense or the minister of the state or the ministry of the state. It all goes back to Romans chapter 13, that God appoints them to serve as a ministry. Now, what do we mean by this? It is the limited purpose of the government and of the authority of the government that Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 13. What does Paul say the ministry of the state exists for or the minister, the ministry of the governing officials stand for? He says here a good thing and that a bad thing. He says in verse 4 that he, he the servant, the minister, The governing official is for your own good. You see, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the world has been in chaos and the world has been spiraling out of control. And therefore, God has to have appointed governing officials, elected officials, and police officers, and firefighters, and paramedics. Why? To restrain evil. This is what we call in theological circles the second use of the law to restrain evil, to push evil back. And so those that are governing officials have been appointed by God to restrain evil for the common good of all people. But there's also a negative aspect. What? An avenger, this is the second part of verse four, he's a servant of God, an avenger of those who carry out wrath on the evil doer. So that when there are 
crimes and there are evil that is pervasive in any culture that the ministry of the state or the ministry of the government has the power to take the sword to avenge the evildoer, an instrument of God's wrath. So an idea of the ministry of the state or the ministry of the government, a servant of God Most High, ultimately is called to stand between its citizens and evil, that there is ruin and brokenness in this world, and that the governing authorities have been given the ministry of the sword. Imagine a culture or an environment or a community with no rule, with no order, with no government, with no leadership, absolute chaos. And so the government has been given, albeit a limited responsibility, has been given the responsibility of the sword to restrain evil and to promote good and human flourishing for all people. The implications for this are staggering. If you serve in the military, if you are an elected official, if you have served in the military, then your labor has been tremendously valuable in the economy of God. That God looks at you and says, you are in the ministry, executing and carrying out my will, restraining evil, promoting the common good for all people. So I would encourage you to walk humbly, to remember the truth, and to hold your head up high, remembering that God has called you to be his servant wherever God has called you. So we see here in Romans chapter 13 why we subject ourselves to governing authorities, that we live under submission to the governing authorities, that we see the source of all authority as coming from God, and then we see the purpose of all authority. But then lastly, we see how the people of God are are to respond. What is the church's response in light of this? If God is sovereign over all, regardless of the culture, regardless of how bad things seem to be getting in any particular circumstance or culture or community or environment, as, as, as distressed as you are about opening up the newspaper or turning on the internet or turning on the news or the media, how is the church called to respond in light of this? Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, pay taxes, honor those who are in authority. What Paul is saying here seems so simple and so basic. He's basically saying on the surface, do what they tell you to. Pay your taxes, be a good citizen, honor and respect those that God has ultimately appointed. But there's more to this, isn't there? There has to be. This is it? Pay taxes? Respect? What is ultimately at the heart of this for the Apostle Paul? Well, the whole idea of paying taxes was the controversy of the day. Paul, do you really expect me to pay God's money to those that hate him? Do you really expect me to take all of my assets and resources that ultimately belong to God and give it to a man and his people who hate you? But you see, this wasn't a new controversy. This had been the controversy of the day for 20 years. Do you not remember? It was in Mark chapter 12 
where they were asking him, the disciples were asking him the very same question. What do we do with the taxes that are owed to Caesar? And Jesus blows them away. And Jesus says this to them in Mark chapter 12, verses 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. What is Jesus saying here that is relevant to Romans chapter 13 and ultimately to us today? And it is this, that as a Christian, you will, on this side of heaven, always live with a tension And this is the tension. It is the tension of your dual citizenship. That on the one hand, you are a temporary citizen of the kingdom of this world. Therefore, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But at the exact same time, you are an eternal citizen of the kingdom of God. Therefore, render to God that which is God's. And so therefore, in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, Paul is getting to the answer that was established or asked back in Mark chapter 12, verse 17 with Jesus, that you are living in the kingdom of God, but also at the same time living in the kingdom of this world. And it will cause you to live with a tension. John Stott, the late theologian, said it best. We find ourselves citizens of two kingdoms, the one earth and the one heavenly. Each citizenship lays up, lays up us duties which are not at liberty for us to evade citizens of the kingdom of God and simultaneously citizens of this world. That's why as a church, we are committed to being a gospel-centered church that equips culture-shaping Christians because when you leave here this morning and as you go out into the world and into the culture that we know is anti-gospel and anti-Christian, we need to be equipped and prepared that how do we live as both a citizen of this world and also a citizen of the kingdom of God? How do we bring how we exist and work and live in our culture in line with God's sovereignty and Christ's lordship. A few things as we close. Practical ways that we can respond. I said this at the beginning, but we actually can act and start acting as if this is my father's world. We can actually start speaking and living and loving and acting as if he is always on his throne, always and forever. See, what happens when we actually believe and live as if he's on his throne and as if this is my father's world, it creates the perfect balance. It causes us not on the one hand to be shy and to retreat as citizens of the kingdom of God, that we're able to go out with boldness and courage and confidence, but also in the same way, it causes us to not be arrogant, rude, and prideful and angry, no more angry Christians. But the church can actually have a balance and say, I can go with the truth because the truth is on my side and with humility and love and service, I can announce and proclaim and live in such a way that this is my father's world. Oh, what we would do for our children and our children's children to set that model for them, to show them that God is still the ruler yet. We can also pray for our leaders. 
We can pray for them. We can encourage them. If it is true that God has appointed them for such a time as this, if God has appointed them to be servants of his, oh, how should we be praying for them and lifting them up in prayer that they would stand for righteousness and justice and protect the innocents in every culture, in every society, at every stage of life praying for them, respecting them, that they would understand their God-given role of standing between evil and the citizens of this community. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And also, we can be civil in our demeanor, realizing and remembering that our love for others, even maybe those that we disagree with, is shaped by our love or God's love for us. But in closing this morning, I want to ask the question, what will actually motivate us beginning this afternoon and tomorrow? I mean, why not, Pastor Rob, take up the sword? Why not fight? Why not be angry? Why not take up the sword? Well, we need to remember and take our orders from Jesus. That same scene that I referenced earlier in my sermon, Jesus before Pilate, You'll notice in the story that there's something missing in Jesus' hands. There's no sword. But just a few hours later, at the end of the day, there would be something in those hands. It would be nails. And it would be the very model and the testimony of Jesus, not holding a sword, but holding in his hands the nails that would hang him to a cruel tree that would be our model forever as the people of God of how to respond in this cultural moment and every cultural moment. You see, it would be the model of Jesus surrendering and ultimately laying down his life that would serve as the perfect model and the only motivation for you and me of how to exist as the people of God in this moment that God has called us to. This is where the power comes from. Not from wealth, not from social position, but our power comes from prophetic witness, generosity, and sacrificial service. Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, this is our chance. This is our opportunity to show our community and the world that we belong to Jesus Christ and he is on his throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is my Father's world. William Wilberforce was born in the United Kingdom in 1759. William Wilberforce, for most of his young adult life, was a nominal believer, a nominal Christian. He entered into Parliament, the House of Commons, in 1780. But just a couple years later, he re-encountered his pastor and mentor, John Newton, who was a former slave trader and also the author of Amazing Grace. And he experienced real conversion for the first time. And when William Wilberforce came to Christ, he went to, back to his spiritual mentor, John Newton, and he says, now I guess it's time to go work at the church and to go into the ministry. And John Newton says, no, 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 no. You might have the most important ministry. Ministry in the House of Commons in British Parliament. Because I believe that God has raised you up for this very purpose, to be a minister on behalf of God, to end the slave trade and abolish slavery once and for all in the United Kingdom and the British Empire. And so William Wilberforce went back 
into the House of Commons and into Parliament. And he spent the first few years championing the cause of abolishing the slave trade. And then finally, a few years later, in uh, 1787, he proposed a bill to, to uh, Parliament, and at first it looked like the slave trade would be abolished, but the, the pro-slavery forces rallied support, and it defeated Wilberforce's motion. Wilberforce wanted to give up until he received a letter from John Wesley, and he wrote him this, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise and opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is a scandal in the religion, a scandal of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God has raised you up for such a time as this, but if God be for you, who can be against you? All are together stronger than God? I think not. Go on, young man. Go on in the name of God and the power of his might. Two years later, he would present a motion before Parliament that would pass to abolish the slave trade. Two decades later, July 26, 1833, not only would the slave trade be abolished in the British, in the British Empire and throughout the United Kingdom, but Parliament voted to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom and the British Parliament altogether. William Wilberforce said, I never thought I'd live to see this day. He passed away three days later. William Wilberforce, a politician or a minister of the kingdom of God, how will you respond? How will you respond to this cultural moment with fear or with arrogance or in the name of Jesus? What a time to be a Christian. What an opportunity we have. For not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Lead on, O King Eternal. Lead on.